Good afternoon. My name is John Walters. I'm Chief Operating Officer here at Hudson Institute. On behalf of my colleagues here, I want to welcome you to the Betsy and Wally Stern Conference Center here at Hudson Institute. Next month, the Supreme Court will rule on a major pillar of the Affordable Care Act. In King v. Burwell, the justices will decide on the legality of providing federal subsidies to individuals who purchase health insurance coverage through federal rather than state-run exchanges established under the Affordable Care Act or Obamacare. No matter which way the court rules, the debate over Obamacare and how best to reform our health care system to ensure quality care for all Americans will remain a central topic in Congress on the presidential campaign trail and obviously throughout the country for all Americans. Given the critical importance of health care to all of our lives, Hudson Institute is honored today to host Louisiana Senator Bill Cassidy highly distinguished American who brings a unique and real-world perspective to our health care policy debate, having served on the front lines of medical care as a doctor and now as a policymaker in the Senate. Senator Cassidy has nearly three decades of experience in providing primary and specialist health care services to uninsured and underinsured patients in Baton Rouge, where he also co-founded the Greater Baton Rouge Community Clinic, a clinic providing free dental and health care to working to the working uninsured. Today, Senator Cassie, who serves on several major committees, including Energy and Natural Resources, Appropriations, Veterans Affairs, and the Committee on Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions, will offer his views on the consequences of Burwell and his health plan, the Patient Freedom Act, as a lower-cost, patient-friendly alternative to the Affordable Care Act that would protect the millions of Americans currently receiving federal insurance subsidies from losing their health coverage. After Senator Cassidy delivers his remarks, he will join Hudson scholar Tevi Troy, my friend and former colleague in the Bush administration who served as Deputy Secretary of U.S. Health, uh, U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and now heads American Health Policy Institute a more, for more discussion of the Senator's plan and the political road ahead for health reform. Please join me in welcoming Senator Cassidy. Whichever you're more comfortable with is what um, I don't mind. I have my I have a slide, so why don't I start? Actually, I'll stand up. Let me take this off. Yeah, that may be a little easier. Thank you all for being here. I apologize for being late. There was a vote which, of course, was delayed, and, but I nonetheless had to be there, so I apologize. Now I, now, I was introduced as a physician, and I have worked in a public hospital for 25 years, and if there's something we tried to weave through, it is my experience that if the patient has the power, the system aligns to serve the patient. If a bureaucrat has the power, it or a politician, it aligns to serve what they think is in the best interest of the patient. If there's a megatrend in our society, it is that the individual has more liberty. And if there's something that definitely runs counter to that megatrend, it is the Affordable Care Act. It is an American value to be about freedom. It is a foreign value to tolerate government coercion. So we feel as if this is a freedom act which achieves the policy aims of the Affordable Care Act, but without the government coercion. This kind of thing at the bottom gives an overview. We attempt in this act to give patients the power by first lowering cost. We do so by eliminating the uh, Obamacare mandates, returning power over insurance to the states who have traditionally had it, and giving patients the knowledge they need 
to make the informed, consist the informed decision which is best for their health. Could I have the next slide, please? Now, first, I will tell you, I am struck. Some folks think there's an option to do nothing and everything will work out. That is not an option. Indeed, I would say, on several different levels, this is a moment of crisis. Republicans campaigned in 2010, 12, 14, and will campaign in 16 to replace Obamacare. Now, we have three options if the Supreme Court rules in favor of the plaintiff. We can sit idly by as five million Americans lose their health insurance, and as the president brings a woman in the middle of chemotherapy up on a stage to point out that, my gosh, she can no longer have her insurance because the Supreme Court struck down the subsidies. He will not point out that the insurance she is forced to purchase is 400% more in cost because of the mandates, and, uh, the mandates of Obamacare, and nor will he point out that the administration implemented the law illegally, which put her in this fix. But he will point out it is a real human need that someone in a critical stage of her life needs help. And that is a valid thing to point out. So he will attempt to coerce um, governors to establish state exchanges or the legislature, the Congress, to establish that a federal exchange is the same as a state exchange in terms of receiving subsidies, but also in terms of people being subject to the penalties and mandates. Now, there is a third option, because I can tell you, as a Republican who campaigned in three different cycles on replacing Obamacare, option two is not an option for me. Nor is option one as a doc who's been taking care of patients in a clinic in a hospital for the uninsured for 25 years. That leaves option three which is to have a plan which is wise public policy and actually raise, would raise the question of why the president wouldn't agree to it. Um, and by the way, this all begins in six weeks. This is our moment. Next slide. Now, you can see here, kind of put differently, what's going to happen. If the Supreme Court rules in favor of the plaintiffs, the states have three choices two of which they already have. They can establish a state exchange, in which case it is the Obamacare status quo. I will note the irony, several states, their state exchanges are going bankrupt. I think it's Hawaii that needs $4 million a year. California's running out of money. So they'll be coerced into setting up exchanges, the business plan of which is not working in either large or small states. The second option is that the state can immediately opt out of Obamacare. If there is a state which does not want to have their citizens receiving subsidies, they want to do away also with the penalties and mandates, they can do it right away. Uh, and then the third option, which is our Patient Freedom Act, we think kind of is the best of both. We allow the care to continue, but nonetheless the state, the individual mandates will be repealed, as will the um, uh, employer mandates, as well all the other coercive measures. Um, next slide, please. Now, um, this is, uh, you notice in our, in our beginning, we said we lower cost. And we lower cost by repealing the mandates. This kind of lists the mandates we'd repeal. The individual mandate would be gone, the employer mandate, essential benefits, actuarial value, and the three-to-one age band. These would revert to the state in terms of the lower two, as regards are the lower three, in terms of how the states 
manage health insurance, which by the way, they did up until 2009. We return that, uh, that uh, responsibility to the states. So we, go, we will lower that cost. Next slide, please. And then the question is, where do we get the money from? Well, let me mention something which is not on this slide. In the uh, budgets that both the House and the Senate have advanced, there's 2.3 to $3 trillion over 10 years dedicated towards health reform. We will be, be, we will be beneath those caps. And within that, we go to a state and say, this is the money that you, your citizens would receive would everyone eligible sign up for Obamacare? We add to that the Medicaid expansion funding if a state has not signed up for Medicaid expansion, which gives us the total allocation. So if this is the money available, the next question is, to whom would we give it? Next slide. Uh, this, this actually has several points to make on this slide. Uh, first, let me point out, there are some conservatives who say that the federal government should not be in the business of ensuring that people have health care. I would like to remind, if you look at that orange piece of the pie, that is a slice getting public insurance such as Medicaid, Medicare, CHIP, Champus, TRICARE, VA benefits, etc. Cost about $7,600 per person per year. The blue are those receiving taxpayer, if you will, tax code subsidized employer sponsored insurance, which is an average tax benefit of about $1,700 a person. And then we have the uninsured, or those currently on the Affordable Care Act, or those who are purchasing their own insurance. That is the only group that might not be receiving some sort of federal aid in purchasing their insurance. That is whom we target. I will also point out, it has been a conservative principle that we should equalize the tax treatment of those who are getting their insurance from their employer with those who are purchasing insurance on their own. We equalize that tax treatment, and with this credit, with this deposit, health savings deposit, it would go to the individual and help make their insurance more affordable. Uh, let me make sure I got all the points on that slide, because my staff gave me four things to mention there. Uh, and I think I have it. Next slide, please. <clears throat> now, one thing that I think is important. Patient has the power. And we arranged, we've, we've talked about the money and um, uh, how much we have, and uh, I think that money should go directly to the patient. Now, it may go through one of two mechanisms. It can either be a per capita block grant to the state. State, this is how many people you have eligible. Here is the money. You distribute it through a, a tax credit system. If the state does not want that responsibility of per capita grant funding, it could continue to go through a federal tax credit. There would be advantages for the state to do the per capita block grant. And I can go through those advantages if folks would like to ask that question afterwards. But we have spoken to representatives of uh, different states. Some are all about the block grant. And some say, listen, our bandwidth is full. We cannot do it. We figure we give the state the option and let them choose which is best, but ultimately that deposit goes to the patient. Next slide, please. 
Um, so we've talked about the money, we've talked about it going to the patient, how would the mechanism work. To your far left, you see the health savings deposit, which would be the tax credit, however we would fashion that. It would go into a health savings account. We thought about Healthy Indiana. The way Healthy Indiana is now for those Medicaid recipients, giving them an HSA uh, uh, with which to purchase health care. So that's what we pattern this step after. The health savings deposit goes into an HSA. An individual can contribute their own money or the employer can put dollars in. Let's start at the bottom of the choices the individual would have. One feature that we include, uh, there is a subset of people who have access to employer-sponsored insurance but who do not pay income tax. They are so low income that they have no income tax liability. That also tells you that that individual probably cannot afford to put up the employee share of the employer-sponsored plan. We would allow her to take this credit, use it as the employee's match in an employer-sponsored plan. So she can enter into that richer policy, doesn't have to go to Medicaid or such like that, she can enter into that richer policy this enables her to do so. Many states, next option up, many states allow folks to directly contract with a provider network. In Washington state, there's something called a direct primary care model. The uh, individual pays 100 bucks a month and everything is taken care of. That would be allowed under here. They could buy other commercial insurance. And the top option is something that we really like. The state would be able, when they put things together, to either say an individual could opt into health insurance or could opt out. So if they make it so that you're in unless you opt out, they would try and figure out what's the most convenient for everybody in our state. If they made it so that the person was enrolled unless they opted out, probably you'd get about 95% enrollment. Now, by the way, Obamacare has left 30 million people uninsured. 30 million people uninsured. Um, and this would do far better at creating access to coverage. I point this out because I actually think this is better policy than Obamacare. And if that is the case, it would create a reason, we'd have to ask the president why would he not agree if we're actually going to cover more people than his plan would. Next slide. Um, lastly, I will say that patients will also have the power of portability. They will be able to move between health insurance plans without penalty. If they get sicker, they can move up. It will only be age rated. We will not medically underwrite, but it will only be age rated so all 57-year-old men will pay the same, all 45-year-old women will pay the same. There'll be, um, or all 45-year-olds, I should say, and all 57, because we do not gender rate either. There'll be continuous coverage for those who have pre-existing conditions. It is not medically underwritten. And lastly, providers must publish the cash price for services reimbursed from an HSA or with cash. My nirvana on this issue would be that a doc orders a CT scan on a child's belly. The wife pulls out, the mom pulls out her smartphone, scans a QR code, and says, hmm, I can get a CT scan for $250 here, 
or for $2,500 there, I'm going here. I picked those numbers. The LA Times ran an article a few years ago that the difference in cash price for a CT scan was $250 to $2,500. The individual would not know. We give her the power of knowing that cash price before she consumes the service as opposed to learning when she's billed six months later. I think this is our last slide or not. One more. Uh, so can we go back to the very beginning? So let me just review. The Patient Freedom Act puts the patient in the middle of the equation, not a government bureaucrat, and gives her the power by lowering the cost lowering the cost by eliminating the mandates and penalties of Obamacare, returning power to the states over insurance, and giving the patient the power of portability, of price transparency, and a protection against being um, uh, priced differently should she or her family member become ill. Uh, we think it's a good alternative. We think, frankly, it's a moment of crisis. If we don't have this plan, after having said we would have a plan to replace Obamacare, uh, we'll be judged harshly. I think with this plan, we'll be judged well. I love your questions. I'm actually going to start off asking the questions, and I will leave time for questions from you in the audience. Uh, first of all, thank you for those remarks. I've had the opportunity, pleasure to uh, talk with Senator Cassidy about health care while he's a House member and now a senator, and I really appreciate that, and I appreciate how thoughtful he is about these issues. Let me ask a very basic question, which is, what do you think is going to happen when the Supreme Court makes their ruling on King versus Burwell? Well, obviously it depends. If they vote, uh, if they vote to uphold the administration's position, uh, nothing happens. Except there'll be continued frustration by Americans who have $6,000 deductibles who are not receiving care now because they cannot afford a deductible, and they continue to resent being coerced by the federal government. On the other hand, if they rule for the plaintiff, then I think we have the opportunity to debate this and to actually put into relief that the issues I think are important can be resolved with a plan such as this. Uh, I think it's a good opportunity for us to reopen a debate about something which the American people are still very dissatisfied with, which is the president's health care law. Uh, so you and I have talked a, a number of times and at length about the importance of communications when it comes to the health care issue. How would you explain your plan? not necessarily just to a group of self-selected think tank panel attendees, no offense, but to the average American in a 30-second TV game. What we would say is under our plan, you have the power. You have the power and we liberate you from those Obamacare mandates and penalties which you have come to despise. We give you the power of price transparency so that you can make a decision as to where to go for your health care based upon what you would normally do, which would be price convenience and quality. We return power to that state insurance commissioner who, by the way, you are closest to. It is a Republican principle that those who those govern best who, who, who govern closest to those governed. And we give you power by returning that power back to the state. Um, lastly, I would say that we also provide that safety net, not for dependency, because we also don't think that anyone should be dependent on the federal government. You should be free. But we give that safety net so that if your husband dies and you have three kids and you don't yet have a job, you will still have that safety net and be protected from that catastrophic illness. Um, and we think that we do all that while giving you the power, not a government bureaucrat.
as we've heard a number of times already, Senator Cassidy is a doctor. In fact, one of the most interesting moments in his successful campaign for Senate was when his opponent talked about how much money she was getting for the Louisiana area in Katrina and asked what Senator Cassidy was doing, Dr. Cassidy. Dr. Cassidy said he was treating patients who were affected in the, uh, by the Katrina attack uh, voluntarily. And so I thought that uh, that was a very good answer and also got him a lot of attention. How, did, um, how has your experience as a physician influenced your views on healthcare? I have worked in a hospital for the uninsured. Now, most of you will never have the experience of being on Medicaid with few people who will see you because Medicaid reimburses below the cost of the provider. And, when you, and, and, and those docs that see those patients are good docs, but the practice is totally different. They will see 100 babies a day in their practice, which means that she, the pediatrician, does not have time to counsel the mom regarding things. She just has to move. Now, your typical public hospital, like the one I served in, is outmoded, it is <coughs> decrepit, and it is something that people don't mind going to if they are shot because they have a perception that they will be treated better by that team, but once they are stabilized, they wish to be transferred out. Now let me contrast that with when the patient has the power. Look at your typical woman's hospital. Women make 95% of the decisions on healthcare, and hospitals line up to serve her because she's gonna make the decision. And you walk into such a hospital, the therapeutic experience begins when she drives up to the door and there's concierge parking. When she walks in, there's a flower shop. There's someone to steer her to where to get her labs. The paint is in powder blue armoire. It is entirely there so that when she walks in, she decompresses and she feels she's in a healing environment. That's when the patient has the power. And if they don't do that, she takes her dollar someplace else. I like it when that whole system lines up to serve her. Uh, as much as I've given of my life in that public institution, I cannot notice it is not she who has the power, it is the government bureaucrat. And that makes all the difference in the world. We want the patient to have the power. You have an alternative in to what happens after King versus Burwell, but you're not the only one, as you know. Senator Johnson has one, Senator Sass has one, Senator Hatch has one. How does your plan fit in with the other plans that are out there by your colleagues, and how do you expect the Republican conference to resolve any differences on how to approach this issue? So you're conflating some different plans. Frankly, right now, my plan is the only one in this niche. And it's not my plan. Uh, Dr. Ralph Abraham is going to, uh, is going to enter it in on the House side. But, but Sass and Johnson are about that transitional funding. The Supreme Court rules against the administration and somebody's subsidies might be cut off, they provide that transitional funding so that the immediate issue of insurance being lost does not occur. We are the replacement, okay? The Supreme Court has effectively repealed Obamacare in some 30 odd states, and we have transitional funding, what do we do next? We are that next step. The other plans out there that have been publicly released are actually repeal and replace for the entire Obamacare law. Now, Paul Ryan puts it well. Uh, President Obama is not going to sign a repeal of a law called Obamacare. Uh, I think that's kind of self-evident. Um, so what we do 
is get in that niche, that narrow area, that affects five to eight million people um, whose subsidies will be declared illegal because the Obama administration did them illegally. Those five to eight million people are those who we address, and then some. Um, uh, and we hopefully plant the seeds for a broader replacement. We would like to think that although here we're restricted to the scope of the Supreme Court decision, the policy is good enough that over time it will become like grass spreading across a barren lawn. People will say, hmm, good ideas. Can we expand its applicability? Can our state join in even though we previously chose not to? And then we can go to a wholesale replacement. So how does your plan affect employer-sponsored care, which is still the way that the bulk of Americans get their health care, 169 million Americans get their health care through their employers? What impact, if any, does your plan have on them? It does not have a direct impact, but it has a profound indirect impact. Um, one of the problems of the employer mandate, if you are well paid, you're already getting insurance. But if you have somebody who is lower paid, the marginal cost of, of providing her insurance is a significant increase in her salary, and businesses will tell you they cannot make their margin if they attempt to do so. They don't want to pay a penalty. So what studies have shown is that those in the lowest quintile of income earners have had their hours reduced from full-time to part-time or even be laid off. Casey Mulligan is an economist at University of Chicago who has reported this. We actually uh, had a young man, um, Chase uh, Lindsay from LSU, who came up and did an internship. We wrote a little Forbes blog. It isn't unique to us. In fact, when Janet Yellen she says she's concerned about the increase in the number of involuntary part-time workers, of course, the fast, food the fast food owner is converting people from full to part-time. What our plan does, it gets rid of the employer mandate. And so now she can have access to insurance, but the employer is not taxed by making her a full-time employee. As a doc working in a hospital for the uninsured, the best thing that could happen for my patient's health is when she got a better job, when her hours extended, when she did a good job and she was able to get a promotion, et cetera. Uh, the Obamacare law punishes her makes it less likely that she will get more, uh, more earnings. Our job makes it more likely, she, our, our, our bill makes it more likely she will. So we remove, by removing that employer penalty, we do affect employers, not through the employer-sponsored insurance, but through their ability to pay people more by letting them work longer, even overtime. So I'd like to transition in a moment to letting the audience ask questions, but I will ask one last question that's more future-oriented, um, and it's a two-parter. Where do you see healthcare playing in the 2016 presidential race? And also, where do you see our healthcare system going in 10, 15, 20 years from now? Um, first, 2016. Uh, Republicans are great when it comes to national security, energy, the economy, uh, but we've got to earn a hearing on things like healthcare. And women are making, women have disproportionately voted for Democrats. Now, if we as a Republican are going to say you should vote for us, then we must address the concern that women preeminently have. Women make roughly 95% of the decisions on health care. 
I may punch the button, submit this form for the insurance, but it's not until I brought my wife in and she has looked at it and we have all the doctors she wants and she knows our budget can afford it, then I hit send. That is typical. I like to joke, I'm a gastroenterologist, typically when a man gets a colonoscopy, it's because his wife is dragging him in. But there is also those women who are single, 35, 40, may have children, may not. They're aware if they lose their job, they may go without health care, and women, again, are sensitive to that. If we have good public policy that says to her, you can trust us on health care as well as the economy, national security, energy, et cetera, we will get her vote. By the way, women are the ones who are upset about these skyrocketing premiums. Women are the ones who are upset about $6,000 deductibles. Women are the ones who love the idea of price transparency, that she can scan a barcode and find out where her daughter can get the CT scan most effectively. They're the ones who like our plan with the health savings account in which they have first dollar coverage at the urgent care center should their daughter need to be seen for an earache. Uh, and men and women despise the fact the federal government attempts to coerce them into doing things against their will. So I think we have an opportunity with good public policy to um, reintroduce ourselves to some who have disproportionately been voting for Democrats. And that will make all the difference in the world. The second part, where do I see it in 10 years? It really depends. The seeds of destruction are already being seen within Obamacare. Um, I don't know if it's a majority, but a substantial number of state exchanges are in fiscal problems. They have run out of federal dollars and they're running three to four to five million dollar deficits. Now, most states don't have a lot of money to shove at a business model which is not going to get better. And yet the federal government mandates that you do so. Um, people are very upset about $6,000 deductibles. And um, uh, you speak to physicians and um, people are foregoing needed care because they cannot afford the deductible. And although Obamacare is supposed to take care of medical bankruptcy, with these $6,000 deductibles, people are having an increased incidence of medical bankruptcy. Um, uh, so I think that Obamacare, as much as the people who support it will just want to think it's, peaky, uh, it's, just, it's just peachy, I think the word on the street is that peach is rotten. And uh, they will continue to expand government control, because I think that's the only paradigm they know of. If we succeed, it'll go where the patient has the power, not the government. And again, I think the patient having the power is the better way to go. Now, I have lots more questions, but I'd like to open it up to the audience and, ask, and let you ask your questions. If I don't see hands, however, I'll jump in and ask more. Sir, in the second row, you um, had a question earlier? Yes. Yes. Thank you very much, uh, Mr. Troy and Senator Cassidy. John Gizzi with Newsmax. And um, my question is this. You know, the Senator spoke about 30 million Americans not having health care um, since Obamacare has gone on the books. Now, a lot of that are people who previously had health care that they were satisfied with, lost it in one of the unexpected consequences of the law. Congressman Upton introduced legislation that said if you were satisfied with your health care plan, you could keep it. Is there anything contained in the Patient Freedom Act that would guarantee future freedom of holders of plans to keep what they have or even get back the plans that they lost 
um, when the law went into effect. So the plan, to keep the plan that you formerly had, we met with some insurance people yesterday, and they said, listen, for us to reconstruct those plans would be very difficult. One, the regulatory environment has changed, and two, the pool of people that subscribe to those plans is now dispersed. You'd have to put it back together to make it actuarially sound. So what folks don't realize, Obamacare has scorched the earth. If, if, you, if people think it's just going to kind of, oh my gosh, magically go back to where it once was, the, the Obamacare law has just made that next to impossible. You have to kind of, again, plant those seeds that hopefully will grow to return to, once, to that which we once had. It will not be overnight. On the other hand, part of the, pro part of the process by which that occurs is market forces. If the patient has a choice of what she wants, typically the insurance companies are going to try and find a way to meet that choice. And so we think that giving the patient the power to choose the plan she wishes to have will begin to jumpstart the, the reconstitution of a uh, better marketplace. Next question. A related question. A related question. Uh, my name's Locke Kuhn, and I'm with an investment group in the medical area. Uh, the HSA system was growing at about 70% per year since its inception in the early 2000s. So it was overtaking uh, many other approaches. To, uh, it overtook HMOs, for example. But with the act that was uh, under Obamacare, a number of the advantages of HSAs were removed, in part to, to stop uh, something that would show up uh, the Obamacare program. So I wonder, in your planting your seeds in order to return uh, a, a HSA-based system, uh, are there thoughts to returning some of those benefits, such as lots of medicines that don't have to be reported on by a doctor every I think three or six months in order to re-prescribe uh, various medications such as after LASIK and, and other long-term. Uh, yeah, we could have another fast. form on our Medicaid reforms, oh, excuse me, on our HSA reforms. One of the things we do, for example, is we allow insurance companies to market health savings accounts in which you don't have to exhaust the corpus in your HSA before you enter the catastrophic portion. So, for example, someone comes to the, to the emergency room with a traffic accident and is admitted. He's admitted to the ICU. Well, instead of saying, okay, you had $3,000 in your HSA, first exhaust that, and then we are going to begin to let the catastrophic coverage begin. Rather, once admitted, it would then go into the catastrophic coverage, preserving that $3,000 for that which was intended for outpatient visits, for medications, et cetera. So we are gonna have a whole, we have another seminar on what we've tried to do with HSAs to make them more useful uh, and more used uh, by patients. More questions? Over in the back. Um, Senator Cassidy, uh, Dr. Ella Toombs, a dermatologist in Washington, D.C. As opposed to... Now, my ears are 57 years old, so can you speak up just a little? So I'm sorry. Yes, I'm a dermatologist in Washington. As opposed to the Affordable Health Care Act, under the Patient Freedom Act, what happens to those individuals who have, uh, first of all, pre-existing conditions? Also, those young people who have been allowed to stay on their, 
parents' health insurance and those individuals who are low wage, even at working and getting paid for 40 hours a week and don't have employer supplied insurance can't afford it? So first, we'll, well, um, several points. We do not medically underwrite. So if someone has a pre-existing, she or he would get the same rate as everybody of their age. So we do not medically underwrite. And we think if the state adopts the system in which you have to opt out instead of being opt-in, you get to about 95% coverage, 90 to 95% coverage, in which case the pool is large enough that the extraordinary expense of one is spread out among many. It is the law of big numbers of insurance. We think it works. Secondly, we continue to allow um, young people to stay on their parents' insurance until age 26. That was originally a Republican proposal, so I continue to adopt that. Uh, and then the third, we think for the young people, this is great. Um, young men are typically stupid when it comes to health care. <laughs> Probably other things too. Uh, saying that as a, as a fellow who is formerly a young man. Um, but if the state adopts the kind of you're in unless you're out, you're in unless you opt out, then the young man can be totally passive. He can be, you know, working 40 hours a week and fishing on the weekends, uh, but he will still have some coverage. Uh, now, we, the HSA literature suggests that it's one trip to an emergency room that educates somebody about, wait, I actually had an account here, and I just frittered it away when I could have gone to an urgent care center or called my doctor and seen somebody at their office that same day. So we actually think those younger men will become what are called activated patients, just like everyone else, an active, engaged, I'm going to look for the best price and the best quality. And that's one of the things in our proposal that we think the literature supports will occur with the wider adoption of health savings accounts. Thank you, Doctor. I'm Jolie Friedman with Newsmax. It's a pleasure to talk to you, Senator Cassidy. Um, so you explained a lot about what would happen with the patients, which was great, very informative. If the Freedom Act is successful, um, where do the doctors fit in? Uh, what's the effect you see happening on them in terms of their own livelihood? Yeah, the wonderful thing about, by the way, at the end of this, I want to ask why Newsmax gave the Clinton Foundation a million dollars, but that's another uh, question. <laughs> um, laced through here, is the opportunity for markets to take hold. Now, you notice that one of the options is the direct primary care. So there, there's a group out of, out of um, uh, Washington State where the subscriber pays 100 bucks a month. And it's not a contract they, in the sense that they can leave at the end of, if they're not pleased, they can leave next week. And those docs provide all the outpatient services they need. If somebody has a migraine headache, at 6 p.m. on Friday, they don't send her to the emergency room because they will lose her business if she has to go wait in an emergency room when they're paying to be. No, they have someone who will see her at the office. Wait times are five minutes. The way the physician makes the money is typically about 50% of a physician's overhead is spent on billing insurance companies. That collapses. And that collapses, and, and so the physicians have a better lifestyle, they spend 30 minutes with a patient instead of 10 minutes, and they do well financially. They have a more rewarding experience with the patients with whom they treat because instead of being shifted here and there as their insurance changes, it's more of a long-term relationship. I think in this are many things in which the market will respond favorably. For example, I mentioned that app where the patient can scan and see where the best price is. 
It's not invented yet, but someone's going to. And when that someone does it, he or she's going to make a lot of money, but more importantly, will save a lot of money for some mom, you know, kind of wondering where to go. So we think there's a lot of things in here that, that unleash the market in a very positive way. So we have time for one more question. And uh, before I pick someone, I want to say two things. One is, uh, in the interest of fairness, let's make sure it's someone not from Newsmax. No offense. Uh, and then the second thing is, since all of you are interested in, in healthcare by definition, I want to let you know that on June 10th, we're going to be having a panel right here at Hudson at the same time at, at noon on the excise tax. And we're going to have an interesting bipartisan alignment where we have a conservative and a liberal arguing for it and a conservative liberal arguing against it. So um, with that said, let me get the last question. Yes. Thank you. Uh, Greg Roberts from the Advocate newspaper in Louisiana. I've got a three-part question. First two parts are short answer. Um, uh, I don't, correct me if I'm wrong, I don't think you have actually formally introduced a piece of legislation that incorporates this and... It will be in two weeks. In two weeks. We'll come okay. back to the break. And the other question is, uh, this would apply only to the states like Louisiana or to the three dozen states that now are on the federal uh, health care thing. Uh, so would the money for this basically come from the, the current subsidy money? I mean, it would just be converted to this plan? Can you flip to that slide? Greg is my hometown newspaper, so I... Uh, <laughs> we take the money that people in the state would receive would they sign up for Obamacare, plus the dollars available through the Medicaid expansion, and that becomes the pool of dollars that would then be distributed to those, that five to eight million people and then some who otherwise uh, have unequal tax treatment uh, from the federal government vis-a-vis -vis purchasing their own insurance. And the final question is, uh, it, you've said that m probably most people will end up in this um, default plan if, if states adopt the- I don't know if it's most people, but there'll be some, some percentage of people. That young, that young man whom the dermatologist mentioned to, the doctor mentioned, that young man who's otherwise a passive player, or think of the schizophrenic lying beneath a bridge. Uh, who is, just doesn't have his life together. We get coverage for him, by the way. Okay, so, so what, how do you know what kind of a plan that will end up being? How do you know it won't have a $6,000 deductible? So in that default plan, as we call it, it would have a health savings account, and I'm sorry I should have emphasized that on the slide. Can you go to that slide of the options? Oh, I'm sorry, we didn't put it there. Uh, if you have the health savings account, this would be automatically a catastrophic plan with an HSA and a pharmacy benefit. It would only be if you did something else that it would cease to be so. And so if one did nothing, one would have coverage, but if one becomes an active participant in her care, then you have a lot more options. And we think over time people would do so. By the way, this bends cost curves. The academic literature shows that a health savings account is about, before Obamacare, was about one quarter cheaper than traditional insurance. And people did not forego needed care. Statistically, they were just as likely to get preventive services as those with traditional insurance. I will also point out, the Rand Corporation did a great study a couple decades ago, but still considered a landmark, in which if you uh, modest cost sharing will decrease use of medical services. And it usually doesn't matter unless somebody has a chronic disease like diabetes, in which case 
cost sharing, think a $6,000 deductible, would decrease needed health care. With this health savings account, they'll get first dollar coverage for that visit to the physician. And she will not have to forego needed care because of a $6,000 deductible. We actually give her coverage for that. Please join me in thanking Senator Cassidy and Hudson Institute.